Video Game the Movie the Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Video Game the Movie the Podcast. I am your host, Nathan Bertram. I am also a host, Mackenzie Easton. I am also, also a host, Lexi Conwell. And we are here to talk about video game adaptations into film. And today we're talking about Silent Hill. Honey, sometimes when you go to sleep, you go on a little walk. And sometimes you talk about a place. I don't remember. That's why we're going to go there. So you can remember. Do you know what's going on here? This place is completely cut off. Only the dark one opens and closes the door to Silent Hill. Hey! Where is she? I'm trying to find my wife. She looks exactly like Shannon. Why? Or hell. It's okay, baby. Mommy's coming. Sounds. This one doesn't suck ass. No, it really doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, this one's this one's all right. So this is a 2006 movie. Yes, we're in 2006. Um, this was directed by Christoph Gans, who is most well known for the kind of obscure but mostly well received cult film, uh, The Brotherhood of the Wolf which is a period drama about a group of people who get hired to hunt some wolves in France. It's apparently pretty good. I haven't actually seen it, uh, but School of Movies, which is a podcast Kenzie and I have guested on before, did an episode on it. So if you're interested at all in seeing that movie, I'd check out their show. But Silent Hill was his next project, and 
he wanted to make this movie so badly that he lobbied to get the rights to direct it for five years. Wow. And eventually he sent in a recorded video interview talking about how much he wanted to make the movie and like outlining his plan for it and talking about how much the games meant to him. And Konami was like, you know what? Fine. (laughs) (laughs) So he directed Silent Hill. And I do think the genuine interest and passion shows in this one because it is. It really does. Yeah. It's like, I don't, I haven't played any of the games, so don't take me on this. I don't know whether it's a good or bad adaptation, but as a film, it cares about what it's doing and has really good setups and payoffs and very effective horror stuff. Of the horror video game movies we've watched for this, which is, I think, a disproportionate amount of them, (laughs) this is the one that's upset me the most. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. This movie has a lot of symbolism. It also goes real hard on a lot of real gory stuff. Uh, So yeah, maybe some content warnings for this episode. Oh yeah. We're going to be talking about some probably gore, some uh, like... Child abuse. Sexual assault. Um, Um, Sexual assault. Violent, lots of violence against women. Cult mentality, zealousness. Religious fundamentalism. Yeah, it's... This is a very dark horror movie. So, yeah, if any of those things are troubling to listen to, uh, I would skip this episode. And not watch the movie. Don't do that to yourself. Yeah, don't watch the movie either. (laughs) But you probably know that. I mean, to be fair. So, uh, who wants to do the very quick recap? Or do you want to start with game background? Oh, game background, right. Right. We didn't do it last time because it was Spy Kids. <laughs> Important update on the Spy Kids note, by the way. There's going to be a sequel to Shark Boy and Lava Girl, so uh, keep your eyes out for that. <laughs> All right. So Silent Hill was released in 1999. It's a Konami game, which is one of the more well-known studios out of Japan. They're not doing very well anymore. <laughs> Apparently they were always kind of shitty to their to their people. Um, which is a little bit a part of this story. It was developed by a group within Konami Japan that was known as Team Silent, and it was composed almost entirely of people who had been on previous Konami projects that failed. And these people had been talking about leaving the company because they just didn't feel like they were their work was being respected or that they were being treated very well and they were all just kind of tossing the idea of like jumping ship and working for another studio but konami essentially put them all together and told them to like try one more time to make a horror game for us so they did and they decided that they wanted to really push the envelope and make something that had more artistic merit something that would be more like culturally persistent than the kind of B-movie plots that were being used in similar games at the time. Most notably, it's often compared to Resident Evil and it does have a much more serious tone to it. So they decided that, you know, screw the rules, they were going to make something that was psychological and dark and interesting that would stick with audiences. So they turned to 
psychological horror and the works of Dario Argento and the, the cinema horror masters for inspiration, and they based the setting off of an amalgamation of their idea of small town America <laughs> from various different cultural references and created Silent Hill, which is a small town in Midwest America. And the game follows an everyman single dad. I don't think the mother uh, there like a partner is ever really referenced in the game who is taking his daughter Cheryl on vacation and they're passing through the town of Silent Hill when a figure appears on the road and he crashes his car. He wakes up and his daughter's gone, his adopted daughter is gone. And the game is him wandering through the town, encountering occasionally one or two human beings. But mostly the town is populated by monsters and filled with this otherworldly fog that obscures everything but a few feet around him. And yeah, it's a really solid game. The story is a little bit like esoteric. It contradicts itself at times deliberately and is designed to be kind of ambiguous. And that's part of what makes the game so great. I really like Silent Hill. I've played the first two. I didn't play any of the later ones because I didn't have a PS2 at the time and I never really got back into the franchise. Uh, but the first two games are both fantastic. And uh, the movie pulls mostly from the first game and it does bring in some elements from 2, 3, and 4, which were all released by the time the movie came out. Yeah, I think that's about it. So the film version, very similar setup. Yeah. Uh, I can run over the quick synopsis if you guys want sure sure okay so silent hill 2006 the movie version is about a woman named rose and her adopted daughter sharon which like weirdly similar names i don't know why you didn't just stick with cheryl but whatever rose and her husband who is played by sean bean whose name i never picked up have adopted a young girl named Sharon, who keeps sleepwalking and having screaming nightmares about a place called Silent Hill. So Rose takes her daughter to Silent Hill in an attempt to figure out, like, what's going on with her and help her, like, get over this clearly upsetting thing that's happened, where when they get to the town, they see a figure on the road, crash their car, and then when she wakes up, Sharon is gone, and she has to brave the city of silent hill which is covered in ash because there is a coal fire burning underneath the town from decades ago and she discovers a cult of people living in the town and a bunch of monsters that come out during specific darker periods in the town's function meanwhile sean bean is trying to find rose and sharon and you know facing some of the other side of the mystery to uncover what happened at Silent Hill. By the end of the movie, Rose successfully takes her daughter away from the cult who was about to totally kill her, but she doesn't exactly get to return home. Uh, is that good? Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Seems like a pretty good brief synopsis. This movie has a lot of symbolism and esoteric stuff going on uh, that we'll probably get into more detail as we go through. Yes, so the actual, like, opening of the movie is already, like, pretty intense as Sharon has sleepwalked herself right over a cliff. Well, to the edge of a cliff. To the edge she of a cliff. She doesn't actually go over. 
She gets very, very saved close. by her mother moments before. Rose, Mother of the Year Award. She's doing real hard. She is trying so hard in this movie. Do we want to give general thoughts before we jump into details? Uh, yeah. My general thought on this movie, first off, is the soundtrack is phenomenal. They yes. did a really good job with the soundtrack, it, uh, especially at the beginning. But, but it's a it's a very minimalist soundtrack. There, it's it's subtle. It it doesn't. It's not a loud pounding soundtrack. Not much. It it gets a little bit more intense later on. But especially at the beginning, it's just these faint hints of just kind of sounds. Maybe a little bit of rhythmic stuff but it's very minimal or not even there the the movie doesn't open with any music it's just like we cut in and we've got them calling for sharon basically and i thought that was really effective uh use of not using music one of the really interesting things about the soundtrack in this movie is that it's mostly the soundtrack from the game rearranged Oh, that's cool. one of the reasons it sounds so unique. And I think that was a really awesome like decision they made. Yeah, is that it kind of sounds like a video game score, but in a good way. And they they do a great job of putting it in the correct places. And yeah, the people who made the first score did a fantastic job. It's one of the reasons why the first <clears throat> Silent Hill game like really sucks you in is that it's got a very good soundscape. So Good job on, like, not breaking a thing that's already good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and uh, to jump off of that, one of the things that I discovered when I was researching this is that Christoph Gans actually had Akira Yamaoka, the original sound designer for Silent Hill. Uh, He also composed a lot of the music, uh, maybe even the whole soundtrack. I don't remember exactly. Uh, But he did... A lot of the music and the sound design, because this was a small team and they were working kind of on a budget. He had him flown in like to be on set so that he could consult with him about like, how should these things sound? And then he had him work like with the composer to like bring the original sound, like the music back. And the, the film composer basically just rearranged a lot of it to work with like orchestral instrumentation and stuff like that. Uh, rather than writing a completely original score. So almost everything that you hear and in terms of sound effects and music in this movie is based directly on what was used in the first game, which I think is really cool from a like adaptational perspective when you're making a movie. Yeah, this is probably the most like genuinely loved project we've ever come across, <laughs> where everyone was like, I really like this thing. But also... I think benefits from the fact that the first Silent Hill game was inspired by film horror. Like it was directly calling to, yeah, Nathan mentioned Dario Argento, uh, the Suspiria guy. Yeah, there's also not a little bit of like David Lynch to this. Like they reference Twin Peaks in some of the stuff I read as an influence, which you can see in the like small town America setting and some of the character stuff has a lot of that that weird, surreal tone to it. So basically, this movie is a horror Boros. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Can I get a t-shirt that says horror Boros and it's just like a horror movie eating its own tail? <laughs> uh. 
I'm done. I've, I've made my joke for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, but yeah, my general thoughts are also like, yeah, it's actually pretty good. Um, it's not like the best horror movie I've ever seen or anything, but it's like respectable mm-hmm. and it's got some like genuine like stuff it's attempting to address and everybody's like trying their best and it doesn't feel phoned in any at any time. Is it a little bit like cliche at times? Sure, but what horror movie isn't at this point? <laughs> and I think maybe its biggest failing is that it, it works a little bit too hard to explain everything by the end, which, you know, I can take or leave. I like a little bit of ambiguity in my horror movies, but I know that that's not everybody's bag baby. Bag baby. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I also really like this movie. I'd seen this movie a couple times before the podcast. So like over the years. So I was already a little bit familiar with it, but it had been a while. Um, and yeah, like it holds up pretty well. Uh, I do agree that there is some some structural problems towards like the latter half of it where it does kind of get a little bit verbose with telling you exactly what's happening, especially since it goes through a lot of work earlier in the movie to show you like the aftermath of these events in a way that well implies what happened. And I think it maybe would have benefited from being shorter and a little bit more focused on the characters rather than the like events themselves. Uh, it could have used a little bit more emotional clarity, I guess, overall. But it is, like, it looks great. That's something that a lot of the critics agreed on, even though this wasn't really a critical success. It did make money, but it the critics were kind of lukewarm on it, but it does look great. The acting is stilted in parts, but overall uh, holds up pretty well, especially compared to other video game movies of the time period. Uh, and yeah, like it's clear that the people that made this cared about adapting the game in a way that preserved the like tone and atmosphere. And that really does come across. Like they preserved the tone and atmosphere better than the people who like rebooted the game later. <laughs> Are you talking about the HD? Yeah, the HD <laughs> remake. There was an HD remake of Silent Hill where they got rid of all the fog. What? Um, yeah. I think That's it stupid. was. It, it may have been the, the second one, but yeah, there's like. Infamously, they did an HD collection for the PlayStation 3. So, one of the things about the fog in, in the first couple games is it wasn't just an atmosphere thing. They had to hide the rest of the map because everything was continuously rendered and the hardware at the time was not powerful enough to handle (laughs) that much at one time. So they, they put this fog in the game as a way of obscuring the rest of the environment. So they only needed to render like a few feet of the map at a time. That's awesome. Uh, But the result is that you get this like very claustrophobic, intense horror experience and in like one of the HD remasters, they because it's the PlayStation 3 and they have more power to work with, they took the fog out so you can just see the whole town as you're walking around and it really kind of ruins the experience uh, from what I've read about it. I haven't played the HD remaster, so I don't know personally, but yeah. It has been discussed greatly. <laughs> Any more thoughts before we dig into the movie proper? I have thoughts about the ending, but I think I'll deliver those when we get there. Mm. Lexi? I'm good. Uh, Other than like, I mean, I figure we'll do symbolism on the way. Yes. So as I mentioned, movie starts with Sharon 
almost jumping off a cliff because of nightmares. Uh, and we see briefly the like mine shaft filled with burning coals that is at the center of Silent Hill, which is a pretty effective little bit of showing what we're coming up to. And then Rose kidnaps her daughter because Sean Bean's not listening to her. Uh, Sean Bean doesn't die. Sean by Bean. The way. Yeah. Also, Sean Bean. He could have like not been in the movie, and it wouldn't. I wouldn't have really cared. It wouldn't have. Yeah. That, that's one thing. He, the The guy in this movie isn't that relevant. There is a reason for that. Do you want me to get into that now, or to wait for fun facts? Oh, we can we can come into it when it's more relevant. But okay, yeah, yeah, we'll get to that later. I do get the sense that. There was supposed to be more done with John Bean's character or something because, as is, his storyline just kind of stops. Yeah. Uh, he gets a bunch of information and it kind of helps in like filling out details, but not really because all of those things were also being figured out by Rose. And then he gets sent home by the cops <laughs> and then he just kind of stays there for the rest of the movie. I almost feel like he was supposed to like. I don't know. There's something missing there, and Nathan knows more about it than I do, clearly. But let's not get into Sean Bean, because his character is not very important to the main bulk of the story. Rose takes her daughter to Silent Hill, West Virginia, down country roads. And she stops off at a nearby town for, like, a break with her daughter, who is, like, a delightful child. Just a lovely little girl who draws very pretty pictures and loves her mom and is... You know, doing just fine. Except for when she sleeps, she messes up her pretty little photos with horrifying nightmare scribbles. <laughs> and uh, also she almost throws herself off cliffs. It's really kind of a problem here. Uh, at one point it is mentioned that they tried to have her medicated to, like, fix that, which is interesting. Uh, that Sean Bean is like, let's just hospitalize her. Well, it sounds like Sean Bean has been keeping her on this medication and Rose has stopped her from taking it because they have a phone conversation where uh, Sean Bean's character, Christopher, uh, is, says um, she needs to keep taking her medication. And then Rose is like, the pills don't work, Christopher. I'm taking her to Silent Hill. But it is pretty clear from the context of the movie that it wasn't doing anything. Yeah. Because uh, she doesn't actually have a mental illness. She has a ghost problem. Kind <laughs> yeah. of. Very. It's weird. Uh, One of the notable things here about the altered drawings is that she keeps drawing the same symbol, which is like a cross with a semicircle uh, and some like arrows attached to it, which becomes important later, but it shows up here to begin with. It's around this point where they get pulled over. Well, not pulled over. A, like, cop just shoves her face into their business for no apparent reason. It's really weird. Um, and it's just kind of, like, being a little bit creepy at them. And then she just kind of stalks them later. She moves like an axe murderer, is what I noted. Like, Yeah, they're, she they're... looks like a Terminator. <laughs> she shows, like, she's she just at, yeah. she's, she's a, like, bike cop. Uh, she who's at a gas station and she sees this mother and daughter and when the mother is in when she sees Rose go into the uh, gas station she goes over and is just like being creepy to Sharon and Sharon's like I don't talk to strangers and closes the window on her 
as Sharon good. is a good kid. Yeah, and <sighs> this cop ends up chasing them into Silent Hill uh, later on, and kind of causes the accident because she just decides to pull them over for no seeming reason. Well, we learn later that she does kind of have a reason for following them into Silent Hill, which is rushed by very quickly. It's brought up like three times, but uh, it never really t- is closely yeah. tied to this event in a way that you might notice. Yeah, th- mm-hmm. there's another character who is involved in Christopher's storyline uh, in that subplot where he tells there, there's a, a cop, I think it's like Sergeant Gucci, <laughs> which I don't know why they picked that name, but he is a cop who used to live in Silent Hill before the fire and his family's from there, but now he lives in the neighboring town and he works for that police force. And he knows this cop, Sybil Bennett, because she's part of his uh, like deputy force. And there was an incident several years ago where somebody took a child into Silent Hill to like throw them down a mine shaft. And Sybil went in like after them and found the kid and stayed with him for like three days until help could get there, which is like a weird story. And the details don't really make sense. And it just kind of comes and goes in the movie as like an explanation of why we should trust this character who up to this point hasn't really given us any reason to trust her. She gets better over the course of the movie, but it takes a while. Yeah, she's a real pain. In the beginning. And that's not just my bias against cops. The movie doesn't do a good job in giving you any reason to like this woman until she starts being useful. And she does start being useful, to be fair. I also, I want to backtrack a little bit to uh, Sharon and the drawings. The movie does play a little bit on those possessed child tropes. It's a very, like, common spooky child horror movie thing. But I do think it, it takes it in an interesting way and they're they're doing fun things with it because Sharon's not really the antagonist force and she's not actually present for most of the movies. She's kind of just an inciting incident. Yeah, Sharon's uh, possessed child type of scenario is less that she's a possessed child and more that she is the good final bit of good spirit that has been torn out of a traumatized child so she is basically kind of a physicalized ghost that's like getting a new start well yeah the, the metaphysics of this world are a bit bonkers while the re, while the child that's causing everything to happen is like basically doesn't have that and so is just like causing nightmares on everything but also kind of righteously yes so when they get to town town is weird Mm-hmm. Town, town weird. We get, like, an almost exact recreation of the opening scene of the game where they're driving across the bridge to enter Silent Hill and a child-sized silhouette appears in the middle of the road, so she swerves to miss it and then blacks out and wakes up and Sharon is gone and the radio doesn't work and her phone doesn't work, so she has to go into the town and look for her. Which she does. And the town is covered in ash... Uh, which probably felt pretty intense in 2006. I mean, it's it's pretty intense now, even, looking at it. Yeah, it's a pretty cool effect. Yeah, it looks pretty dope. Uh, and then she wanders around looking for her kid for a bit, and then air riot sirens go off as she is heading 
underground to like a, I don't really know what the area is supposed to be. Well, she follows presumably the same like child like figure down this alleyway stairwell and ends up in what turns out to be the basement of a bowling alley. But it is indistinguishable in this scene because the darkness has arrived and covered the town. And in exploring this underground room, she encounters these children made of ash that are like smoking and reaching out for her. It's really upsetting. (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about the darkness and the monsters, because I don't know if we need to do plot by plot breakdown. Let's talk about the interesting stuff here. Yes, as we mentioned, the first monsters are children burnt to a crisp, screaming desperately and reaching out uh, with like just a little bit of like fire kind of sticking out of them. They're really freaking upsetting. Yeah, they're 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 fire zombies, but children. Uh. They're child size. So extra scary. Oh, and also the moment that leads into this is when she finds a eviscerated corpse strung up crucifixion style on a chain link fence. Who is still uh, alive. As she gets close to, realizes it's still alive. Yeah. A lot time. of crucifixion in this movie. A lot of crucifixion imagery, for sure. For a property based on a Japanese thing especially yeah they they went hard on the like idea of christian ish witch hunters and then we're just like yeah everybody's a witch and everybody shall burn to be purified for innocence and it's terrible (laughs) yeah not tonally but somewhat in plot this movie reminds me of paranorman which is also uh, spoilers for Paranorman. You should totally watch it if you haven't yet. But I haven't. Paranorman also turns out to be about uh, a little girl who was killed by witch hunters unjustly wreaking her revenge upon the people who wronged her. Whoa, really? Wow. Yeah, it's intense. Not at all what I expected from Paranorman. Great movie. Overall, better than Silent Hill and also less upsetting. But <laughs> very different. Like, it's not trying to <laughs> very, be the same thing. So, very like, different. <laughs> But it would be a really interesting double feature. Uh, watch Paranorman second. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it ends on a better note. But the point being, yes, the big villain of this is not necessarily the darkness or the spooky town or the like monsters. It's the Christian sect that has been doing horrible cult things and running this town with an iron fist since its like founding. That everybody like kind of just talks around. For the first half of the movie, and then you get more and more signs that something's wrong here. But it starts pretty early going that direction, because when they stop outside of uh, the first town, and they're just chilling in the nice meadow, there's a big billboard with a spooky Bible verse written on it, which is, in on itself, not weird. I mean, it's weird if you really think about it, but like in West Virginia, that's pretty like standard. Like those kind of billboards just exist places like they exist yeah. in like I mean, North it, Dakota. To be fair, <laughs> it is also in front of a church. Um, yeah, they they exist. It's not like a church sign, though. It's like a billboard. Yeah, it's like a Bible verse printed sign, on same it. block. It's like to get your attention to look at, hey, look at this church, go to the church. But the, the verse is something like, do you know that we will judge the angels? And then do the saints know that we will judge the saints? Something it's, like that. You are going know. to be judged. Yeah. Yeah. 
it, it, it's, Everything is. Corinthians? I don't remember. Uh. It is a reference to the idea that humanity will be exalted in like the, the righteous of humanity at the end of their life will be exalted to the point where they will be the ones to decide the fates of angelic beings, which clearly is the mindset that this cult has. <laughs> yes. So it does a good job of, and I think this is partially because it has been transferred from a foreign interpretation of America to an American's interpretation of America. It does a good job of slowly building the like creepy Christian imagery from stuff you'd kind of expect in like a Midwestern town to, oh, this is a bit more than usual. Uh, Just pretty effectively. A quick correction there. Uh, Christoph Gans is actually French. Oh. Oh, yeah. Has he lived this in movie America? Is definitely not American. They would not have allowed this. Uh, you know, I didn't actually come across that in what I was reading, so I'm not sure. But I would still say a French person probably has a better understanding of what America is like if they've been there than a Japanese development team would have in 1990, but I could be wrong on that. I know the Americans have feelings about French people sometimes, so <laughs> get into it too much. Do we? I think that's an old stereotype. <laughs> um... <laughs> No, I don't think, generally speaking, Americans care about the French anymore. That was like a 2000s era thing. Uh, at the time, this probably actually would have been somewhat controversial because it would have been a French guy, like, criticizing American Christianity while America was, like, angry at France for not helping them blow up a bunch of people. America. Really? Uh, <laughs> Kidnapped me. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I offer, um, but... The point being, I think it does a good job of building this without immediately tipping its hat to, this is a creepy Christian culty thing. I think the point where it starts tipping its hat is when she's in the school, but I think that only really works in hindsight because the town is kind of difficult to read the age of until somebody tells you when the events happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that's intentional. I think because everything's covered in ash and it's pretty destroyed and it's like the kind of smallish mid-sized town where it's like it was probably established quite a while ago. So a lot of the stuff kind of never got updated. You know, that kind of small town. Uh, your town kind of looks like this, Lexi. <laughs> what, 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 what do you mean? L- listen, leave the old brick buildings alone. We've burned down enough of them. <laughs> <laughs> But the point being, this is an aesthetic. Um, yeah, definitely. And from just looking at it, you can't tell whether it burnt to a crisp in 1950 or 1980 because it's hard to tell. It's covered in ash. It's stuck in a timeless time loop, kind of. So Yeah, it's stuck in a weird state. It's literally in limbo. <laughs> Eventually you find out that it was in the 70s when this happened, which makes stuff a little bit weirder. Because what you might accept in a Christian school in 1950s might be different than what you expect in the 1970s. There's a good 20 years there where standards changed. Yeah, but if your cult is running a running the town with an iron fist... Maybe it makes more sense that your children have ostracized the child for being a witch and throwing stones at her in class. A child who doesn't seem to have done anything. Yeah, she doesn't yeah. jack shit. 
the motivations are really muddy in the movie for why they single out Alessa. Alessa, right. I thought it was Alyssa because you saw it written down first, but then they start yeah. pronouncing it Alessa, and I'm like, okay, I don't think that's a name, but whatever. That is a name pulled directly from the first game. Oh, well, whatever. Uh, but yeah, so Alessa, it, it's, it's unclear, I found in the movie, why they t- chose her specifically to single out as a witch. I think it was because she didn't have a father. Yeah, in the summary I was reading, it's because she was a bastard, is what they oh. say in, in like the plot synopsis I was reading. I mean, religious fundamentalists, yeah, I, th- that tracks, but also seems like a weak justification to me. <laughs> yeah, like the whole thing is very... It feels like they will turn on literally anyone at any moment, as long as, like, if they don't have someone to be, like, ostracizing, they will choose someone from their own group and find a way. Like, they're very filled with hate and zealousness. The the cult is very fascist in that way, that they have, like, a very, very narrow definition of what the in-group should be, and they will narrow that further if they need somebody to blame for the problems happening in the town. So I guess we're kind of going really hard into it here. Let's let's describe the metaphysics of this world a little bit. So Silent Hill looks like a normal-ish town that went through a like disaster about half the time. <laughs> uh, it's just like a town with a lot of ash falling from the sky and like boarded up windows. Like it, it looks like a deserted town. Uh, And then at seemingly random intervals, there's no real sense to it, but that's fine. Air raid sirens go off to warn people that the darkness is coming. And when the darkness comes, the entire town transforms into a horrible nightmare scape of blood and rust. Uh, And it is dark. Very, very dark. Everything gets filled with zombies of varying kinds. The walls just like rot apart. We get like the inner workings of various machines. We've got a lot of, there's a lot of like fans and windmills that like, if they weren't there, they are revealed. If they were there, well, if they were there, like in the walls, they're revealed and they start up going real fast. If they weren't there, you might just add some windmills and they're going fast. Barbed wire too. Lots of barbed wire. A lot of barbed wire, a lot of pestilence, filth, fire. All of the windows and doors also like seal up, usually with rusted chain link, uh, like bolted over them, sealing people into buildings. Uh, And it is at this point where the monsters come. So we already discussed the terrifying molten children. Uh, I think next was... The acid zombie. The guy strung up in the washroom? No, it was the acid zombie. So after experiencing the ember children, uh, Rose runs back to her car and starts to find a trail of of Sharon's drawings. Uh, But So she's like getting her stuff out of the car and meets... And then the... Police officer shows up and, like, arrests her and starts to drag her out of town. Rose is like, hey, this town is, like, maybe cursed or haunted or something. Something weird is going on and I need to find my kid. And she's like, uh, no, screw you. And then they get to the edge of town where they find that, hey, the town is cut off from literally everything. We've got the endless gray abyss that if you fall into in a video game, you'll probably teleport back onto the edge of the map because it's the edge of the map. But in this, you'll probably just die forever. But they get 
ambushed by a bloated acid zombie corpse. Oh, right. This thing's really upsetting. It just kind of walks down the hill and then down the road towards them. It doesn't have any arms, but maybe the arms are inside its flesh. Uh, Unclear. It doesn't really matter. It spits acid at them, and then Sybil, the cop, shoots the zombie a lot because it's an acid zombie. (laughs) But... Then they head back to I'm going to do a hardcore uh, visual description of this thing, because I just remembered what we're talking about. I think I blocked it out because I found it really unsettling. Oh, we the, well, do we want to do hardcore visual descriptions? I don't know what else to do because I, I can't. I'll do my best. Uh, also worth noting, the acid isn't uh, like traditional <laughs> acid. It seems to be like coal dust acid that maybe does some burning effects. It's interesting. Like, it it fits in with the aesthetic of the town really mm-hmm. well. It's not, like, bright green acid acid. It's no, like, it's, it's kind of, everything like is coal bile. Super well-themed. <laughs> um, yeah, as Lexi mentioned, it doesn't have arms, but it's also, like, a, like, pink-fleshed, weirdly proportioned. It's got, like, a huge barrel chest, like, unnatural and very thin everywhere else, and no face. When it's spitting acid, it's not spitting it from its face. It's spitting it from a hole in its chest. It's really yeah. upsetting. Yeah. I want to, like, it's good. Like, I'm, here's the thing. Up to this point, I've been kind of disappointed by the actual horror qualities of most of the horror monsters on this series. This is the spookiest thing since Face Leech. We've also skipped past, up to this point, Dahlia, who I do want to discuss. Oh, I liked her. So Dahlia <laughs> is introduced a little bit earlier. Rose comes across this very decrepit looking old woman. She's got a very intense um, Grizabella the Glamour Cat vibe going on in the sense that she like looks like trash and everybody hates her for reasons that are unclear. Uh, and she's like over the top weird old lady. Like she doesn't look like a normal weird old lady. She looks Ancient like rags. a weird old lady <laughs> in a stage production. Yeah. And that's intentional. It doesn't feel stagey. It just feels like, well, this town's weird as hell. Yeah. You liked Dahlia. Tell me about Dahlia, Lexi. So I liked Dahlia because she actually seemed kind of nice compared to everyone else. She like She's, she's doing her best. She's spooky, but she's kind of... She's also searching, Dahlia is also searching for her daughter in this town, uh, who was taken, I think she mentions, uh, and her daughter is Alessa, kind of, but she's, I don't know, she's like, she gives weird bits of esoteric wisdom to Rose, but you don't really understand it as you, which, you know, fits the archetype, but I don't know. She she's like you said. She's just doing her best, and she's just kind of like trying to survive in this horrible limbo cult town. And like try, she's the basically the only one looking out for Alessa and like the darkness. She doesn't ever go into the church until the end when she, kind of everything gets allowed into the church. But she and she also clearly has some power with the darkness because it doesn't seem to threaten her in the same way. Yeah. Um, because she's the darkness, well, she's Alessa's mother, and, yeah, I mean, I don't know, I liked her, she's, like, looking out for her daughter, and trying, she doesn't like the, the fundamentalists, because they're, uh, really evil. <laughs> they burned her daughter. Yeah. Uh, yes, like, Dahlia's a very tragic figure. Yeah. We haven't actually explained the whole, uh, burning of Alessa 
starting of the darkness stuff yet, have we? No. I wanted to talk about the darkness a little bit before we got there. Okay, okay. Um, but we can do that now if you'd like. No, it's just like, it seemed like we were talking around it, and I couldn't remember if we'd touched on it already. Uh, I think the next monster, I think I'm just going to go this by this monster by monster, because it's a pretty <laughs> effective way of getting the plot across, because by the end it is revealed, so that's what Alessa or the darkness or whatever is doing. It's leading Rose monster by monster through the plot of the movie <laughs> <laughs> to, like, explain what's going on. So Rose keeps finding, like, things or being led by this little ghostly child to different parts of town. The first thing is she finds a drawing of after she goes to the edge of town and finds the drawings, the drawing is of the school. So she goes to the school where she meets a guy chained up in the bathroom stall, uh, Colin. With barbed wire. He's, this is really good zombie monster design. It's really upsetting. (laughs) Uh, it's, he's a twisted corpse bound together with barbed wire, who then of course, uh, once the darkness happens, um, becomes, you know, no longer just a corpse and starts, oh, so he's chained up and once he comes to life, he starts spreading filth, kind of. He, he corrupts the walls. Everything he touches is corrupted uh, and creates these boils in the floor, uh, which I think is very much a metaphor for the sexual assault that he did to Alessa, which is kind of the root of what one of the roots of all of this yeah the thing that seems to have pushed the town from hating alessa because she's a bastard and like isolating her to actually like trying to kill her was that she was assaulted by uh what appears to be the janitor at the school because nobody was there for her and so she got trapped in a situation where she could not escape yeah uh so when she gets supernatural powers, she chains up that dude with barbed wire, and I support that fully, yeah. honestly. Uh, yeah. It's real gruesome, but it's like, once you know that, you're like, okay, fuck Colin, though. <laughs> Before the darkness takes over in this scene, Rose gets her next clue, which is there is a uh, scrawled in paint or marker or something on the wall of the bathroom stall is... Uh, a arrow and the words double dare you pointing to Colin's mouth, which holds the key to a room in the Grand Hotel. I, I don't know. Does, was it a key or was it just like a piece of a sign for the hotel? I think it was part no, of the key fob. Yeah, it, it wasn't the whole key or the like, fob. It was just part of the key fob. You know okay. how hotel keys have those things attached to them so that they don't like get lost or stolen? Had. Older, yeah, like had. actual physical keys. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's, but it, it's one of those. Yes. Okay. If it's... you go to an actually old hotel that still has physical keys, they have them attached to like yeah. things. Uh in the the older hotels that are fancy tend to have them on like nice wooden like things. The ones that are still around because they're old and they haven't had the chance to fix anything because they're broke have it on like crappy plastic yeah um okay yeah so she finds this key and then as she's trying to escape or as she's like leaving the school uh she runs into people in these suits and gas masks that uh start chasing her so she runs back into the bathroom barricades the door uh locks it with this ring of keys she found earlier and then 
the darkness happens. Uh, these mysterious people run away and Colin wakes up and starts to chase her. Then she falls out a window. Yeah. It is at this point where the next type of monster gets introduced. He's not a threat at this point, but you see him. It's the one we've all been waiting for. The most iconic Silent Hill monster, Pyramid Head. (laughs) That's by far the most terrible description name for really horrifying creature. Also, there are roaches. Don't forget roaches. Lots of roaches. The roaches are upsetting. The roaches have human faces. Roaches that have teeth and stingers. <laughs> yeah, and human faces. I thought face leech was bad, but face roach is also pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, so Pyramid Head is the final villain, essentially, uh, of the second game, and he is very well known and loved by fans of the games. He's like a really intimidating monster that follows you around for a lot of the game, and the way that you can tell he's chasing you is because you can hear his massive sword dragging across the floor as he follows you. And it's really cool and intimidating. <laughs> I do want to say, and, and you can agree with me or disagree with me on this. I think Pyramid Head is a fantastic video game villain, iconic for a reason, fantastic in his original format. I don't think he makes a lot of sense in this movie. No, not really. Compa- like everything else is pretty much tied to like the plot of the movie pretty stri- tightly. Pyramid Head feels like, well, we have to have Pyramid Head. And like he's used pretty well. Like when he's like actually like going after them, it's a scary scene and he is intimidating. But when you go over every single monster in order, it's like all of these things tied to the plot or the themes. And then it's like, except for this dude, he's got a big black pyramid for a head, seems to be wearing some kind of loincloth thing, uh, got a real big sword, definitely wants to kill you. That's about what's going on with him. <laughs> There's uh, a moment later where Pyramid Head comes back where he kind of gets summoned by Dahlia. It's like implied that he is the like intimidation force of these things. But, like, everything's been so intimidating so far. Yeah, it's not super necessary. <laughs> he can't raise the stakes when the stakes are already face roaches. <laughs> there is there is some background to the original ending that maybe explains why they wanted him to have such a presence earlier in the movie, which I'll get to when I talk about stuff later. But Foreshadowing! Th- there was... <laughs> Probably a reason they wanted to have him in there. Besides iconicness? Besides just the fact that he's, yeah, so iconic. They they were setting up something that unfortunately couldn't get paid off. Yeah. So I got that sense. I think that's the same with Sean Bean. And because I can feel that this movie was made with care, it sticks out when things are like, don't fit that. Like there's a difference between this was made with care, but it's a little bit clumsy. Like I think the ending kind of has those, like not the ending ending, but partway through the ending has that problem, but I don't think that's like because anything got forcibly changed or because they were shoved to do anything, but Pyramid Head felt a little out of place. So it's good to know that there's more to it than that. Yes, but Pyramid Head traps Rose and the cop in a like fan room later and tries real hard to do some stabums at him. And it's, it's intense. Yeah, he shoves his enormous sword through a metal door 
and does can take does a lot of stabbiness, but they manage to barely dodge the stabbiness, and then the darkness eventually fades away, and all the roaches die moments before eating them to death, and then everything goes back to normal. <laughs> yes, in the school they've discovered one. There was an Alessa who got like really badly bullied, and they discovered Colin, and then they run into Pyramid Head, and then what is next? Oh, they uh, go to the hotel. Yeah, the hotel. Uh, the Grand Hotel is a hotel. They find another person there, which is actually really surprising at this point in the movie. Yeah. Because up to this point, you kind of just thought it was Dahlia being weird. But no, there's other people here. Uh, introduce Anna, who looks a little bit like Karen Gillan, but isn't. Yeah. I like, Anna was cute. I liked Anna. Poor, poor dear. Anna's an interesting character. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't really deserve what happens to her. Um, no. Yeah. So really? Anna is a... Uh, she is out scavenging supplies, and as she describes it to them when they ask what she's doing, she says that, uh, I think it's like, mother needs to eat, is what she says, and mm -hmm. she's like getting supplies, which it turns out is in reference to the head of the cult, Christabella, who we'll meet a little bit later. Uh, but also her actual mom does seem to be in the town, too. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, no, no, her mom is one of the cultists in the church. Mom yeah. is also a cultist. Yeah, uh, anyway. And she's initially stoning Dahlia. <laughs> she's throwing rocks at Dahlia. Yeah, right. Yeah. Forgot about that bit. But uh, Rose and the cop lady, Sybil, stop this and then kind of drag her along with them for the while because she knows the town and it's useful. More accurately, she just kind of follows along and they, are, they yeah. let her follow. Like a kind of puppy with a kind of shattered mind. She's... <laughs> not all there she's kind of she's like a puppy raised by cops <laughs> <laughs> um no uh, more like a puppy raised by witch hunters and then like traumatized her entire life it doesn't seem like the people who were in this cult were probably doing great before the town burnt to a crisp but they're definitely not doing great now they're also not really people anymore in the strictest sense, because I think they're all dead. Yeah, they are very dead. Or not dead, but they're stuck in, like, limbo where they should be dead. Anyways, in the hotel, behind a painting of a witch being burnt at the stake, they find a creepy doorway into the cult room. So they find out the key that they found, that Rose found in the school, was for room 111, but there is no room 111. But at the end of a hallway, there's this portrait, and she cuts through it and finds this hidden room, which, yeah, turns out to be the uh, ceremonial room where the cult committed their, their, like, sacrificial burnings to cleanse the town and restore innocence. This backfires on them, because really... You probably shouldn't be doing sacrificial burning, but you really shouldn't be doing sacrificial burning inside a very old hotel because <clears throat> it's a fire. A fire happens like yeah. would happen. Uh, the fire happens and it's like supposed to be retributive because like they're burning an innocent child to death. But like it's also just because they started a fire inside a hotel room. <laughs> yeah. So this is the the over where the plot really gets kick in. They find the room where Alessa was burned and then exiting this room, Rose finds and finally corners this child that has been dragging them around everywhere who looks exactly like her daughter, 
but like is clearly some kind of spooky ghost child who then lights herself on fire and disappears. It's very creepy, but in a kind of mischievous way. Yeah, it's creepy, but it's not like, I'm going to hurt you. It's like, look, I'm on fire. Yeah, she's literally like, I'm burning as she kind of smiles and raises her arms, lights on fire, and then disappears. <laughs> like, uh, this child, like, in this later is explained, isn't really Alessa. It's the, like, summoned darkness that was created or brought to the surface by the horrifying pain and fear and anger created inside a child with third degree burns all over their bodies for being like, you know, burnt alive by their whole town and nobody helping them. Yeah. Uh, so (sighs) she knows what she's doing, but also you don't get the sense that she wants to hurt anybody who hasn't done harm to Alessa. She just wants to do harm really bad to the people who have done harm to Alessa. Yeah, it's an interesting juxtaposition because she's kind of this creepy demonic dark force, but it's like, there's kind of a good reason for this. She's Uh, not the villain. No. But we're about to meet the villain because around here, the air raid siren goes off again. And Anna's like, oh, God, let's get to church. Church is good. Let's go to church. Uh, Church is the only sanctuary, probably because it's the only place that I bet Alessa wasn't allowed to go. So she probably can't get Mm, in there. Interesting. That would be my bet. It's never really explained, but I refuse to believe it's because of the reasons Christabella, the actual villain, says. Which is just, we are too holy here. Uh, so they, Rose and Sybil, I'm just going to call her the cop sometimes though. By this point, she's proven herself useful and has been like, okay, you're right. This town is nuts. And she has stopped trying to like arrest her. Oh, we should know Rose had handcuffs on for most of the first half of this movie because the fucking cop just leaves her in handcuffs in this horror town. Well, she runs away with the handcuffs on while the cop is distracted. It's still pretty brutal. By an acid zombie. Yes, but the cop does let her go eventually. Yeah. um, The next time they meet up, she takes the handcuffs off because now she believes her. Yes, but I just wanted to mention, Rose is at a disadvantage. They go to the church, but Anna doesn't quite make it in and Pyramid Head catches up to her <sighs> for the she, first most gory death of the movie. She notably doesn't make it in because she stays behind to throw rocks at Dahlia again. Yeah. And then, like, Dahlia actually summons Pyramid Head behind Anna. Yeah. Because if you, like, keep throwing rocks at a lady, she'll summon a demon. <laughs> Because she didn't learn anything from the first child, like, first person they isolated into obscurity. Anyways, Anna, who wants to talk about Anna's death? Because it's a lot. Not me. Put my finger on my nose. (laughs) All right. This is one of the most gruesome deaths in the movie. There are, there's at least one more later that you could argue is even worse. (laughs) <laughs> we'll get there. But this one is pretty brutal. Uh, so Pyramid Head appears behind Anna, and as they're like closing the doors to the church and everyone's inside, he lifts her up into the air by the throat, tears her clothes off in like one swipe, and then grabs her flesh 
and just in a single pull completely flays her and then the doors close. <laughs> now, this is by far the goriest thing that has happened in the movie so far if you don't include the fact that a bunch of people have been strung up with barbed wire, but it is a pretty effective means of raising the stakes. <laughs> yeah, this movie gets real, uh, the, the amount of gore in this movie increases from here somehow, but uh, we'll get there. This is definitely the raising of the stakes moment. This is definitely the, oh, stuff just got real. Also, notice how we haven't been really talking about Sean Bean's entire plot arc. This whole time he's been like, he showed up in town for a little while and there was like a, I can sense my wife here moment while they were in the school at the same place, but different sides of the darkness lightness shift, which is, I guess, well, a thing you can be in this town. Well, I think they're in different dimensions entirely because the ash is there all of the time in her experience but for him the town is like it's sunny and the bridge is still there because he yeah, didn't die i think that they died in the car accident but because they were in silent hill got sucked into limbo but also were kind of meant to be there because of the sharon darkness alessa thing that would track because the cop does mention that they really snacked their head on the ground when they got into town. It's not made explicitly clear at any point, really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, their bodies aren't there, at least. But yeah. yeah, Sean Bean has been like looking for them. He's working with the cops from the area. They like remove him from town after they don't find anything from a day of searching. And he's the cops like. You're gonna, like, we're gonna find them, just, like, chill. So he breaks into a government office to steal some records. He breaks into a library. It's a government, like, archive, though. Oh. For the town of Silent Hill. And finds the records for Alessa. Uh, and he's like, this looks like my daughter. So he then goes to the orphanage where they picked her up. Uh, and the nun is like, this really isn't any of your business. And then the cop is like, Dude, you, like, broke into a government office and we knew it was you. You're super arrested. Uh, and then they're like, okay, either I can put you in jail or you can just go home and leave us alone. And so he just goes home. He says something along the lines of, like, I'm going to get more people and figure this out. But, like, well, he goes home. He is escorted home. Yeah. Or at least he's escorted, like, back to where he left his car and told to go home. Yeah. And then he says that he's going to come back with people who know what they're doing. This is intercut throughout most of the story up to this point, but... That um, is, yeah, that is the extent of his presence in the film until the very, very end. Uh, I felt like we should go over it quickly before we get into Final Zone territory, because that's kind of where we are now. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're, we're, we're heading into the third act now. They have entered the church. They are momentarily safe, but the cultists are all very suspicious of them. Because they're outsiders. But one of the cultists is very, very distraught because Anna was their daughter and she just got horribly murdered in front of them. But the head of the church, Christabella, the only person allowed to wear colors in the whole town, <laughs> uh, she's wearing like a purplish blue like dress thing, yeah. um, is like, no, you knew she was doing bad things. Let's just deal with it. And they are like, we can leave these people for now. They're not a concern immediately. We have to pray now. And so they do their real creepy prayer. And then the darkness goes away. Christabella has just this completely serene, soft voice and look on her face all of the time. And it like constantly has her hands clasped and just but with like fingers, her pointer fingers together out. 
And she's just always really creepy. She's just... She's like a creepy church version of Sigourney Weaver is like aesthetically how I would describe her. The actress is doing a fantastic job yeah. of making her this like intimidating force that definitely thinks she's totally in the right and who I get why everybody in town trusts her. It's weird from a like general sense that she's a woman. If you actually think about it, like this is yeah. like a town in the seventies in West Virginia. Like why is the church leader of a group that's dedicated to burning witches a woman? But I think it's just because this movie's very much about women in a way that is like yeah. really interesting, actually. Uh, up to this point, I kind of thought that some of the metaphors uh, in the movie were, I guess, like a like women being harmed by the patriarchy and then kind of raging against it. And and so like there were only women were in the limbo town. And then on the other side, it, it's just men uh, who can't see any of what's going on because they just don't experience really the persecution. But then suddenly they get to the church and it's just like there's a whole bunch of different people there. So it kind of started to, my, my kind of thought on the theming started to fall apart. I think it's still definitely about a large part of the like experiences of women and how like religious zealotry can affect them specifically like mm -hmm. there's there's an archetype of the crone the the maiden and the mother that is like kind of echoed in this with mm, the yeah. maiden the innocent being alessa or sharon and the mother being either rose or dahlia in either setting and then christabella being a distortion of what the crone is supposed to be because the crone's supposed to be a wiser older force that is like the moral center kind of and she's definitely the moral center of this town, but she's bad. <laughs> she's a real bad person. But like, she was also clearly raised in this society that believed this. And in order to survive, you have to be devout. And she's, I think Anna is her closest echo, really, yeah. is like, this is how you get in this town or else they burn you. Like, there's no surviving if you're not part of this system. I think it's also important to note that Christabella is Alessa's aunt. She is Dahlia's sister. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. It's, it's easy to miss, it's not but... heavily emphasized. It, it goes by pretty quickly. But yeah, it, that is that is uh, mentioned at one point in the movie. Which kind of makes it worse. So, <laughs> it does make it worse. But it also, you know... It's not uncommon, unfortunately, for a family where one person is incredibly devout to incredibly distance themselves and, like, attack a part of their family that doesn't follow the rules. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a common <laughs> abuse dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, and it is kind of wild to me how women-centric this movie is without ever really being objectifying or dehumanizing to any of the female protagonists or even the antagonists, except for one moment near the end we'll get to. Yeah. It's, there's one moment. And for 90% of this movie, I was like really, really, really impressed with it, especially as like a male director and I think male writers. And But like, it's a movie about women with interesting women who have personalities and are like different characters. It like kills the Bechdel test. Because it's 90% just two women talking. There's like only, like there's two side plots. There's the two dudes and then there's the two ladies. But like that's still like most of the movie. But let's get back to the plot here. They are introduced to Christabella. 
who they get enough information from to learn that they know where the darkness comes from. And Rose wants to go find it because she thinks that's a way to find her daughter. Yeah. And it's a room in a hospital, like deep below a hospital, kind of. And uh, they, they end up, the church people end up taking them to this churchy place or the hospital place and open an elevator for them where it's like, if the darkness wants you, this elevator will take you down. But moments before they actually let her in, the Christabella hand goes to hand her back uh, this locket that she had, with, uh, which has a picture of Sharon in it. And as she goes to hand it to her, because it, it fell off in the church, but as she goes to hand it to her, it falls open, and she's like, wait, this, your daughter is the image of Alessa, kill her. And Sybil ends up shoving Rose into the elevator and just, like, beating the heck out of these mining, these townsfolk in minor outfits because, you know, they're trying to kill both of them. Uh, And then eventually the doors close and then Sybil just kind of gets beaten to the ground a lot. Real hard. Like, you think she's dead. I thought she was dead anyways. Yeah. I definitely thought so, too. It's like, okay, you are beating a corpse at this point. Uh, but uh, it kind of pans away. It's also worth noting, or like we've mentioned to these miners a few times, they seem to just get dressed up in this mining gear and carry around pipes in case the darkness happens to go do stuff. But like, it's not really clear why. Yeah. But it does make them look very spooky. Yeah, they also take a canary because the birds start to freak out if the darkness starts to come. So that's their early warning. It does a good job of tying in the, like, working class mining background of the town with the, like, religious cult part of the town. Because those two things are actually very much intertwined in most small towns like that. There's nothing quite like a job as terrible as mining to make you really need something like a strong faith to survive. Because mining sucks. Yeah, fair. Uh, it's a bad job. <laughs> Uh, it's better now, but like in the seventies, mm, not so much. Oof, no. Yeah, um, and this is like a coal mine in town. It's West Virginia, Mountain Mama. Take me home. <laughs> Sorry, I did make that joke while watching the movie because there's like a driving montage when they're like going down the spooky roads to get to Silent Hill, and they've already confirmed it's in West Virginia, and it's just I can't not. That's one of my favorite songs. It's a good song. Okay. I've never been to West Virginia. Uh, and I don't really intend to. I'm sure it's fine. Nothing against it. Some of my favorite podcasters are from West Virginia. <laughs> but uh, as we mentioned, Rose makes it to the basement. Sybil does not. Uh, in order to get to the basement room, Rose has to remember the map from up top, which she does perfectly well, and also get past a barricade of creepy nurses. Yeah, these nurse zombies, I really enjoyed them because they're very clearly a dance troupe. (laughs) (laughs) They they are ripped directly from the the first game. Yeah. Like, there there is a sequence, or I think you return there a couple times in the first game, that is in the Silent Hill hospital where these are one of the enemy types and they move almost exactly like they do in the game, which is really neat. And um, it's also probably one of the most puzzle-solvey thing Rose, is, Rose has to do because she figures out that they are like triggered one by light and two by sound. So she 
manages to get through it by like turning off her flashlight and sneaking by. And when they start to move, she ducks in a way that means they start stabbing each other and she manages to push through. This is a really fantastically tense scene. It's good. They move in really horrifying, jerky, twitchy ways. And, but like I was watching and it's like, I can tell that all of you are dancers and you're doing an extremely good job because you are dancers, but I can tell that you're dancers. I wonder if you're like, I, it, there, there's some groups out there that do like zombie stuff, but I, I was impressed by the amount of control they had over their twitchy, horrifyingly contorted bodies. Yeah, these people did a fantastic uh, job. Sorry, my thought is a little bit silly, but given the size of the hospital in this town, when this town burnt down, it kind of burnt down, kind of didn't. There's a big fire underneath of it, but it's not stable to go there. That was a huge problem because that was probably the only hospital that like all of the surrounding small towns used. Mm. When Silent Hill went down, it was a big issue for West Virginia. (laughs) They don't bring it up, but like that hospital's too big for it not to have been the center for like most of the surrounding area yeah but mostly it seems like people are sad about silent hill if they lived there (laughs) and nobody else really thinks about it unless you're going to throw a child down a mine shaft apparently i don't really know what's up with that that's such a weird element (laughs) anyways rose gets to the room that the darkness lives in and the room is just a hospital room with a nurse and a like covered up hospital bed and the little girl that she's been kind of chasing down this whole time. It's it's one of those like sterile tents that gets put over beds when the patient needs to be isolated from like outside bacteria and germs like to heal. It's one of those like ICU burn unit oxygen tent style beds. Yeah. One of the older fashioned ones, because again, this was the 70s. Like now you'd probably be in like essentially a huge incubator, but you know, different different times. This is where we get probably one of the clunkiest moments in the movie, but it's visually really interesting. So I kind of feel like Mm -hmm. a toss up. We basically get the whole movie explained to us. (laughs) (laughs) Rose enters the door and the screen fades to white. And then we get this voiceover from Alessa saying, you've made it to the like source so now you get the truth and then we welcome to exposition town yeah fade into this film grain distressed video it's kind of burned yeah yeah recap of all the backstory that we've seen implied in all of the locations that she's visited already but now it gets explained directly by alessa or I guess Dark Alessa. And then it is at this point where it is explained like what is going on with this like darkness and demon. Not like extremely well, but it's like, yeah, Alessa summoned me because of the horrible pain she was in. Because when she got burnt, she didn't die immediately. She got taken out of there uh, by the cop. Officer Gucci. Officer Gucci. So yeah, what we learn is that Dahlia was part of this cult at the time that Alessa was singled out as the next witch that needed to be burned to stave off the apocalypse, as Christabella talks about it. But Dahlia, understanding what was going to happen, she leaves before the burning and alerts 
Officer Gucci to what's happening. But by the time they get there, it's too late, and the burning has already gone awry, and the like structure that they have built to roast Alessa over this like coal fire has fallen over and basically torn a hole in the ground and started this coal seam on fire. But she is still hanging on to it. She's manacled to this like metal structure and Officer Gucci takes her down and like takes her to the hospital. Uh, but then the coal seam fire starts and after that is when everyone evacuates the, the town. Presumably. We don't get that much detail. It is implied that there are some people who get out. The weird part about this is that it's unclear at what position here the cop is, because he has not aged in 30 years. Okay. But I don't know if that's intentional or not. But, like, none of the characters, with the exception of Alessa, who is in the final scene, the original Alessa returns to the surface shows up she is played by a 30 year old in makeup but aside from her nobody else in this movie has aged but everybody else is like dead in the town and they were in the room when the fire started so for those people i'm kind of assumed except for dahlia dahlia's aged it's like only dahlia and Alyssa. it's weird I don't think I'm supposed to think as hard about it as I am. I don't know that Dahlia has aged, though, because I think she's actually ashy because her skin isn't aged makeup. It's like she has kind of smoothish younger skin. Her hair is just super long and ashy, and she's wearing like lots of kind of rags. Yeah, there's this weird element of the like makeup and costume design is that like almost all of the cultists similarly have like gray hair and like ashen skin, except for Christabella, who's the only one we mentioned before who's wearing like any kind of color and also the only one that seems to have like a healthier skin tone. So I'm not entirely sure what that's supposed to imply like metaphysically, but I I think that's still like a facade though for her. I think she has exploited people enough so that she can kind of maintain this facade of purity. Yeah, that would make sense. I think she also just doesn't leave the church where everyone else has to go out into the ashy wastelands. <laughs> yeah, that's, that that's also fair. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that Officer Gucci, which is never gonna not be funny to say <laughs> is supposed to be on the side of good because he when he brings christopher into the town initially to search for uh rose and sharon he has they have this conversation where he talks about how that barber shop over there that used to be owned by his dad and it's like really tragic what happened to this town because there were good people here some of them deserved what happened but most of them didn't. Yeah, and during Alessa, or Dark Alessa, whoever's voiceover film exposition thing, she does say there was a there were good people who tried to help, and that is, like, framed over the cop. Yeah. So anyways, long story short, Rose gets the full details here. After Alessa was burned, she was taken to the hospital, where she's in such horrifying agony and anger, she summons a demon... Uh, who then creates the darkness or like it's a manifestation of her inner turmoil. It's something along those lines um, that looks exactly like her. And in this process is simultaneously created Sharon, the like remaining good yeah. from Alessa, the like actual innocent child that was 
originally like yeah tortured i think like the this. darkness specifically took sharon this goodness out so that they could secret her away to safety so that she could have later come back and end all of it yes they take her to the orphanage after she'd like grown this is a variation of one of or basically all of the endings of the game have elements of this the first game but the dog ending (laughs) yes except for the joke ending where everything was done by a dog who may or may not be an alien Uh, (laughs) but there are multiple endings to the game (laughs) it's 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 a thing in the Silent Hill series, uh, but depending on certain choices you make that are not highlighted in the game, uh, you can get one of several endings. Uh, but the idea being that in the game's version of this story, Alessa was a child who was chosen to be the vessel to birth a like demon by this cult. And in the ceremony, something goes wrong and the trauma from the ceremony literally splits Alessa's soul into two, and one half is this goodness that is then secreted away to the orphanage, and the other half is kept in this hospital under surveillance by a doctor who keeps her, like, drugged, and it is her, she, she has like telekinetic powers, it's implied. And like in her dream, she is using these powers to twist the fabric of the town to like match her nightmare. And that is like the, the story of the game is about like that trauma that is visited upon this child is then revisited upon like everyone who was involved by encompassing this whole town in this nightmare. Yeah. So this is like a slight variation on it, still very accurate to the themes. But I I like that it is not, oh, they were an evil satanic cult that was trying to summon Mm -hmm. demons. It's just a regular old Christian sect that goes a little harder than usual. It's just very, very old fashioned. Not to say all Christians are like this, obviously not. But like, you know, this is a thing. Real groups of actual Christians did. Not into the 70s. But they did this to people. Too too long. <laughs> Regardless. They did it to a lot of people. Yeah. And probably yeah. a lot of kids. Yeah. Um, and I think this is a more... It's more interesting to me when a story uses stuff that actually happens as opposed to going to the, like, satanic ritual as well. Because, like, actual Satanists are just kind of, like, a joke <laughs> group. Like, the name of the religion is a joke. Yeah. To be a Satanist, you would have to, like, as Christian fear-mongering builds it, you would have to believe literally everything about Christianity is true and then stop right before the redeeming yourself part to go the other way for no apparent reason. Yeah, I I think one of the interesting, and I don't know if I think it benefits the story or not, I kind of go back and forth on it. One of the elements of the change to this is that they make the distortion of Silent Hill very intentional on Alessa's part in the movie. Like she is actively using her abilities to twist this town and visit this punishment upon people rather than it being this passive, this more passive like symptom of the trauma that was visited on her. Because in the game it is happening like within this dream. See, here's the thing. That depends on whether you read the darkness 
producing small child as an actual like part of Alessa's soul or a thing summoned by her anger, which is kind of left ambiguous. It's very, very intentional on Alessa's part. If you think it's half of her, if you think it's like, oh, she summoned something more powerful with all of her pain, then it's it's more that thing doing a lot of stuff on her behalf. I think it's made pretty clear at the end that this is Alessa herself that is doing this. Well, at the very end, that last part is definitely Alessa. She's making, she's very much making choices. I'm not trying to defend her necessarily, but I also (laughs) think that what she does is fine in the end, uh, because fuck those people. Yeah. I mean, they, they're, they, they have died because they were doing really bad things. And then, but they're kind of still ghosts because they haven't accepted that they've died. And so now they're just being tortured for their horror. They haven't been punished for their actions. Yeah. So yes, after all the backstory is revealed, Rose takes in the darkness of Alessa, whatever it is, and goes to the church uh, where she is stabbed in the chest by Christabella. By Christabella. Oh, at first they burn the the cop. They burn the cop alive. Yeah. In front of Sharon. It's really horrible. This is, yeah, yeah the, the next most upsetting death of the movie. It's a lot. Is that we just get this elongated scene of Sybil being lowered on this ladder over the fire, and we just sit with that shot while she just starts blistering and bursts into flame, screaming the whole time. With a small child nearby. Yes. Yeah. She's not on screen at the time. Oh, we should also mention Sharon has been here the whole time. She's um she was being keep secreted away by Dahlia in the hotel, in like an actual hotel room. So she was safe the whole time. And Dahlia, like, of course she kinda stole her. She looks exactly like her daughter who she horribly wronged, um, by not like keeping her from this place. Uh I'm sure she feels a lot of guilt about it. But they get Sharon who they immediately are like, we gotta murder this child, too. (laughs) Didn't learn from the first one. Um, Nope. But Rose gets there. She gets stabbed in the chest by Christabella, which then releases the darkness into the church. Uh, Before this happens, uh, she gets this pretty kick-ass speech. Yes. About how Christabella is just using these, like, myths to control these people the fear and that the apocalypse never happened there is a world outside of this town and that's where she is from and you are being lied to because she wants to control you christabella wants to control you and this is the way that she can do that by using this fear it feels pretty relevant to today yeah yeah this movie's (laughs) pretty solid so rose is like righteously angry. Uh, she gives her righteously angry speech. Uh, and then, yeah, Christabella stabs her, but it's okay because the, she had a ghost in her. Uh, so the wound heals up after all of this like horrifying black gunk comes out. And then the really messed up deaths start happening. <sighs> so a bunch of people get like horribly ripped apart by barbed wire. You know, whatever, they're cultists. But Christabella. Yeah. I'm going to make Nathan describe it again because I don't want to. Do we need to go into that much detail on it? I at the very least want to bring up the part of it that makes me the most uncomfortable because it's the one element of the film that I think is genuinely like unnecessary and kind of gross. Yeah. Yeah. That goes too far. There's a similar moment in the original Evil Dead. Evil Dead. 
Yeah. And I get why directors think this is, like, a good horror thing to do, but it's just... It's not that it's too much in the sense that it's too scary. It's just got too much, like, weight to it. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't think they should have done this. I like the final imagery produced by it, but I don't think the moment in particular needs to happen. And here's the biggest trigger warning. I'll do it. Um, I can do it if you want me to. The ghost essentially shoves barbed wire th- between her legs in a very sexually assaulty kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all for her being strung up. I'm all for the final image of, like, these wires coming out from her chest. Kind of mimics the, like, logo of the church. You could have gotten there other ways. It's just... And, like, I get, oh, it's paralleling what happened. No, it's just don't. Like, you don't need to do this. It's fine. Like, just don't. Like, there's almost no way to do... The only way I've ever seen sexual assault imagery done in a way that is impactful and not just gross is alien. And that's because it's happening to dudes mostly. I mean, there's also... Not that dudes don't get sexually assaulted, but like it's separate too. It's like, oh, there's a penis thing, but it's coming out of the chest and not into somebody's genitals. It's gross. It's unnecessary. I really wish this movie hadn't done that because like Mm -hmm. everything else is really good. There, there are effective ways to do something like this. You mentioned Alien, but there's also that scene in the movie Paprika by Satoshi Kon, where a character in this like surreal dreamscape is like bound by this man who is obsessed with her, and he puts his hand on her body, and it like sinks into her skin, and then he pushes it over her body, and it like opens her up. And there's yeah. like another character inside of that. Yeah, that's also really uh, unsettling, but effective imagery that is not like immediately yeah. like sexual. Like, like you, it's definitely sexual, but it's not like you understand what it is saying without it saying things so explicitly. Uh, and it also kind of helps that it's an animated movie. A little uh, metaphor so goes a, a long more... way. Is my yeah. um, final yeah, point this on was this? Quite literal. Yeah, and it's weird because it's so much more... They're, like, pretty respectful of the earlier implied sexual assault. They don't show you anything. I know it's with a child, so it's different, but they handled that about as well as any horror movie I've ever seen handle something like that. It's, like, you can debate the necessariness of a story doing that kind of thing as much as you want. I mean, I'm willing to hear sides on that, but I don't think this was... That was, like, the worst way they could have talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is like, come on, guys! Like, I really, yeah. I really just wish that hadn't been there. It's like a single shot, but it's like, and they never would have done it if the character was a dude. But that's the other thing, right? I highly doubt if the church leader was a guy, which would have made as much, if not more, sense. They would have shown them being penetrated by barbed wire. Yeah, I wanted to talk about it because I think it's bad and problematic and like not the jokey problematic way like it's a gross fucking thing to have done and yeah while i liked this movie on the whole i want to criticize the things that i thought were harmful in it and that's one of them yeah absolutely i completely agree so on that note christabella just get horrifyingly ripped in shreds she gets torn in half yeah on screen Which I'm fine with. Again, my complaints were not because of this happening to this character, just because I don't think it was necessary. I liked seeing the character in pain. That's fine. They're a bitch. (laughs) 
That's part of the joy of these movies. Anyways, Rose. Oh, I did. You felt joy in this movie? I did not. Well, joy is the wrong word. Satisfaction? Mm. A sense of finality? Anyways. Yeah. Rose and Sharon are like sequestered away on the higher level of the church. Uh, but before they can leave, or before they try to leave, the darkness of Alessa or the demon or whatever it is kind of like has a moment with Sharon, but then they leave town. But as they leave town, it's foggy and it's foggy all the way home. And when they get there, they're alone, but we're getting cuts and it's clear that actually the home is, it's sunny. It's kind of rainy, but the dad is there or it's raining, but like it's different. Yeah. It's light. There's no fog. And they're in a parallel and that's kind of just where it ends. They get home, Rose and Sharon, and they go inside. And then we get this intercut with Christopher waking up and re- noticing that the front door is open. And he closes the front door. And that's where we end the movie. Ambiguous. What yeah. that means? Yeah. And we know that he has gotten phone calls from her. In fact, he gets one while she's driving home, but he can't understand what's coming through. Because mm-hmm. it's all staticky. So that's the note the movie ends on. But I, I get the sense, and you've mentioned, there was a different ending. Yes. So I guess I'll start with the ending, because that's where we're at I'll right now. start at the very <laughs> ending. A very <laughs> weird place to start. <laughs> so the original script for this movie had a different ending. The whole scene in the church was very different. And this is something that Christoph Gans apparently really wanted to shoot. But by the time they came to this, they saved all of this for the end of the production schedule because this was like all like really complicated stuff that they needed lots of time for so they waited until the end where they could shoot all of this uh like at once in the church uh and the original ending the the original alessa's revenge scene featured alessa on the hospital bed like rising out like normal before this happens we should talk a little bit more detail because i did miss out uh during the church scene Yes, Alyssa's hospital bed rises out from the bottom of the town, and that's one of the key visual motifs as all of this barbed wire attack is happening. But also she spares Dahlia, and Dahlia doesn't understand why initially until it's explained that at the end of the day, Alyssa still sees her as her mom and still loves her and has let her go. Uh, We missed that. I want to tie up that note. The line, uh, they specifically say, uh, mother is God in the eyes of a child. Yes. Yeah. So the original version of this scene features Alessa rising from the mine shaft on the hospital bed, and then six pyramid heads rise from the ground. The, the ground of the church gets covered in this black sludge that is supposed to pour out of Rose's wound, which we get a little bit of that, but it kind of disappears and then Dark Alessa shows up. But in the original version, it's supposed to like pour out and create this like swamp of black sludge uh, in the floor of the church. And out of this rises six pyramid heads, and each one is carrying a different weapon. And they go through the church and systematically slaughter all of the cultists in a reference to Dante's Inferno. Oh, sick. In the like... Hell has visited this cult and they are now being actually punished for their crimes. And that was the original ending. But by the time they got there, the producers were worried that it would be too expensive and take too long to shoot. They had dinner with Christoph Gans and they told him, 
you have one week to change this ending or because we just can't get you more funding for it and we don't think you're going to be able to do it in the restraints that you have right now. So you're going to have to change it. And he was kind of upset about this and he was joking with, I think it was his cinematographer, uh, because it turns out that they're both fans of the uh, hentai anime Legend of the Overfiend. Oh, no. Which is apparently... Uh, hentai. Which is apparently cited a lot as one of the manga anime IPs that popularized tentacle stuff in Japan. This is not where I was expecting this episode to go. So kind of as a joke and kind of as a fuck you to his producers, he just recreated a tentacle rape scene from uh. the show as the finale of the movie. So there was no thought put into it. That makes this much, that makes it even worse. Yeah. That makes sense of it though. Why? Cause yeah, it is out of place. And it makes sense to me that it is one of the moments that's like an, un, like a, a thing that was last minute and not really part of the intentionality of the full script, but mm -hmm. also like, come on, dude, that's real immature. Yeah, and this yeah. is like firsthand from an interview with him. So, yeah, it's it's not great. It doesn't really reflect well on the movie or on him. And I not I don't really care what people are into as long as you're not hurting anybody. Yeah, that's go fine. be into tentacle porn. I don't have a problem with tentacle porn. But like this is I I don't think this was a good choice. Yeah. I really yeah. don't. Um does is there any explanation for the whole Sean Bean plot line? Yes. The only other thing, like, there, so aside from the ending, there were two other things that were either changed because the producers were telling him to change things or add things. And there's one scene that got cut because a producer was withholding funds for that scene because they wanted them to get through it faster. So the first scene, that, the, the, the one scene that got cut completely was there was supposed to be a sequence before they get to the hotel where they see one of the armless acid zombies Another crawling one. under a vehicle and like slinking into a sewer drain. And they were kind of tight on time, I think. So Gans had the second unit direct that scene. And what he intended was for the film's choreographer to be on set for that shot because they needed someone who could direct the movement of the actor, right? Yeah. Because that's a hard thing to do with no arms. And the choreographer <laughs> was clearly quite good in this movie. Oh, yeah. He, he, yeah. He, there's great choreography in this. But because the producer was like, no, we need to get this done faster, he refused to like pay the, the choreographer for that day. Like he just didn't want him on set because it would cost too much money. So he was just like, no, just like do it. Uh, that's not how that works. So they shot it without the choreographer there and they tried a couple different things. They had the guy like basically roll under the car on like a green, basically skateboard, like a board with wheels on it that they could just like composite out later or like, key out later um and like gans saw the footage like the dailies of it later and he just he was really disappointed because it didn't look like he wanted and they just 
he just decided that it was going to be better overall if they just cut this and insert what's in the actual movie, which is they hear Anna screaming or Anna or Dahlia, somebody screaming in the hotel and then they run in there. So he just kind of edited around it with some ADR and it it's fine. I don't know what this scene really adds to the pacing or like thematics of the scene. Uh, it might have looked cool, but I don't really know if I'm that sad that they cut it. Uh, and the other thing is what they added, which was the original draft of this movie only had the father character at the very beginning of the movie to be there for the the cliff scene and talk to Rose to set things up. And then at the very end, presumably with the scene where they get home and the door is open and he's by himself. But because the cast was so heavily populated by women, as you pointed out, Kenzie, the producers were scared that it wouldn't appeal to a male audience. <laughs> so they asked Gans and his writer, uh, Roger Avery, to add in a subplot with the dad so they could have more male characters in the movie. And even Christoph Gans admits that these scenes don't really make any sense and don't really add anything to the movie and also kind of screw up the timeline. Because if you just look at the Sean Bean scenes in isolation, they take place over like three days. And yet all of the stuff in Silent Hill is intended to take place over the course of one day. So you end up with this weird timeline contradiction where what's happening in the like Silent Hill dimension is asynchronous with the investigation in the real quote-unquote world. So this might be the most accurate part of it as a video <sighs> game adaptation. It also feels an unnecessary need to cater to men because they can't handle women being in the lead roles. Yeah. I am really mad about this. I did. This is so dumb. <laughs> the, the only thing that I really like from the Sean Bean stuff is the moment where him and Officer Gucci are in Silent Hill searching the school and Sharon runs past them in the Silent Hill dimension and Christopher feels it and like knows that she's there but can't see her. Like, that's a good moment, but... But it never I, amounts to anything! It doesn't amount... Yeah. Okay, the fact that this movie was made... I'm used to movies being made worse by producer meddling. That's pretty typical. If you are a cinephile, it's a story you know well. And you know what? Not every movie that's bad that had producer interference would have been great. Most of them wouldn't be. Fan Forstick was going to suck no matter what. But this could have been a really, really tight horror movie focused on women and they just fucking had to add an unnecessary male plotline that does nothing but distract from the core themes and goes nowhere. Yeah. Yep. I really feel like with a, a, like a handful of really strategic edits, you could really elevate this movie into something like genuinely special. See, here's the thing. This could have been the first video game movie that, at the very least, horror fans recognized as like a genuinely good movie. Yeah, it could have been. And Christopher Gant or Christoph? Uh, yeah, I think it's Christoph Gans. Could have like he could have done it. I genuinely think so. Uh, had it like 
they'd not added this needless male stuff and they'd given them a little more time to and money to like finish off the ending mm-hmm. i think it could have been really good and you know what i still think this is pretty good this movie doesn't have great critical reception but it's also a part of a like two genres that generally speaking don't get good critical reception or very rarely get good critical reception like it is hard like it's getting better but historically speaking critics don't really love horror it's not there. It's not what they're trained on. It's not, generally speaking, what they consider good cinema. There are critics who go against that. I'm not saying it's impossible, but like you're at a disadvantage. Mm. And I think most people would agree with me on that. Absolutely. Um, but like, holy snap, guys! Like, come on. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah. I mean, it also extends the runtime to like over two hours hours. like yeah yeah which is unnecessary it could have been a very tight snappy little thing um and it would have been better for it and it probably would have made more money because you could have shown it way more times in cinemas i mean it did actually make Mm. a decent amount of money it it was shot probably would have made more it was shot for around (laughs) 50 million and it made uh i think just over a hundred like worldwide box office and i don't think that's including dvd yeah. sales so yeah. like it it did pretty good it got a sequel which we'll get to i think uh i believe that was a, another big theatrical release uh so yeah like it it's not like it did bad on a commercial level uh but critics were yeah they didn't really like it so um i guess that's kind of the wrap on this, was there anything we wanted to discuss further? I have more fun facts. The most interesting fun facts center around the choice of the the changes made to the setting of Silent Hill. The Silent Hill town of the game doesn't really have anything to do with mining. It's not like a small mining town. It's just like a Midwestern American town generically. Uh, But the screenwriter who worked with Gans on the movie, Roger Avery, who is probably best known as a occasional collaborator with Quentin Tarantino. He uh, helped write, uh, I think, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. So like a good writer. Yeah. Um, And it's also uh, worked with Neil Gaiman. Uh, He worked on the Beowulf adaptation, the Zemeckis CGI stop motion, not stop, sorry, uh, the CGI motion okay. capture uh, Beowulf movie. I don't want to comment on anything <laughs> on the quality of that. I haven't seen it, and uh, that studio is complicated. Uh, but yeah, they he grew up with stories about the town of Centralia, Pennsylvania, which is a mining town that did experience a tragic coal seam fire that led to the entire town being evacuated. And to this day, as far as I'm aware, that coal seam fire is still burning and keeps that entire area uninhabitable by people. It's a really freaking cool way to make a ghost town, to be fair. Like, yeah, yeah. that's real dope. It's a really interesting choice. It like, I think, elevates the whole movie that this is like, it's such a good like thing to build metaphors on. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a thing that can happen. And that's upsetting. <laughs> yeah, so that's really cool. That, like, change, I think, makes for some really interesting imagery. And, yeah, like you said, it's very good for building metaphor around. And it's very American. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> Thanks. Um, 
It's also uh, something that could super happen in Canada, by the way. It's just the Canada's cold as butts. So, um, <laughs> and our mines are mostly potash and not coal. Um, we also have some uranium mines up north, so you could build some great metaphors around that. Hit me up, screenwriters. Um, <laughs> uh, so this movie was shot in Canada. A lot of the people involved in the production were Canadian, including uh, the actor who plays uh, Officer Gucci is Kim Coates, who is a Canadian actor. Oh, snap. Isn't he from Lake Saskatoon? Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's, yeah. He's like a local boy. For yeah. Us. We're from <laughs> for us. Saskatchewan. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So they shot it in lo- on location in Brantford and Hamilton. And then they shot like tons and tons of, of uh, studio set work. There were hundreds of sets for this movie because they had to, you know, make duplicates of everything for the various different like dimensional shifts. Uh, and that was all shot in Toronto on sound stages. They had like uh, th- their conflict. I've got conflicting numbers on the number of effects shots in this movie. There was a profile done on it on VFX now that counted something like 620 effects shots. I also spread between like six different studios, like three major ones, but then they like some other stuff was contracted out. I want to take a moment here and compliment the effects on this movie. Cause we kind of glazed over mm-hmm. it because we were just talking about, you know, how spooky everything is. It also just looks really good. Like this movie is very aesthetically high quality. It does have that very, um, 2000s era, like color key kind of like lighting fixed. Like there's something very early 2000s about how it's lit and, um, color keyed, but not in an obnoxious way. It looks really good. Um, and the CGI here is the best we've seen by far. Yeah. Um, there's oh, not yeah. a single effects shot in this where I was like, ugh. like everything looks good. Nothing like there's moments there where was... the barbed wire floats kind of weird, but like it's floating barbed wire. <laughs> Yeah, there was actually one scene that did get me where it's like, oh, the CGI is really bad. But it w- it was only this one scene after. So it's during the when the Ember children kind of show up, they are attacking. And at first they look really good. But as they're like pouring into the, the bowling alley, the room in the bowling alley uh, and like crawling towards her uh, just before she kind of gets knocked out and they start to burn away. They, I kind of felt like they looked kind of terrible. Uh, there, similar to like, Liquors in the first uh, Resident Evil movie. But that's the only time where yeah. anything looked bad. And I think they look better than that because they're not supposed to look like flesh. So when right. things look weird on them, they don't look like it's a lot harder to make things that are you, you're you like very familiar with look good in CG. Um, and you're not familiar with anything in this um, and they do a good job of using the lighting very effectively. Um, and everything's really well choreographed and well animated. And I have like no complaints about the aesthetics of the film for the most part. Like, it's scary. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe it gets a little bit samey in that the darkness is always this kind of bloody, rusty kind of zone. But, like, that's an intentional choice. That's, like, a preference thing. Um, yeah. Anyways, lots of effects shots. Well done. Whoever did the effects, like, work in this movie. Good job. Uh, well, one of the studios, one of the major ones, was Mr. X, oh. returning from Resident Evil Apocalypse. So, Canadian effects studio based in Toronto. Um, commonly a featuring on this show. <laughs> yeah. And uh, another thing about the, the monsters, the reason that 99% of them look as good as they do is because the majority of the monsters in this movie 
are people in makeup, professional dancers or contortionists mm. that are moving to choreograph sequences. And some of them are shot in different frame rates to oh, like, so good. emphasize the like alien nature of the movement, which is a really cool touch. And they they used CGI to accentuate the prosthetics and makeup, but they didn't mm. really use CGI entirely for like that is how you do it. Any yeah. like single scenes, <laughs> possibly the like Ash children, because there are so many of them and they're like not human sized. Yeah, but they're clearly they're child yeah, sized. entirely CGI. <laughs> yeah. Unless uh, you're willing to kind of fudge the proportions, generally speaking, if you have a lot of child-sized monsters, you have to do CG. If you're willing to, like, fudge on the proportions, you can hire a lot of um, little people actors. That's a classic technique, but, you know, you really want them to look like kids. You yeah. Do, like, you can't reasonably get that many children in creepy makeup. Like, it's so expensive mm-hmm. and hard to work with kids. <laughs> Not just because they're hard to work with, but because there's so many regulations, as there should be. If anything, there should be more regulations. Yeah, the the real standout in this movie is the actor who played Colin was the same as the actor who did Pyramid Head. And he is, I think, a professional contortionist. He's the Doug Jones type. Yeah, uh, let me find his... uh, Roberto Campanella is Pyramid Head and Colin. I feel like I've heard that name. Oh, before. Colin! I I mixed I mixed up the detect the like police officer guy and Pyramid Gucci. Head. Gotcha. He does some really fantastic work in this movie. Yeah, it's yeah very solid throughout. Something I didn't catch before in my reading, but just noticed now as I was looking up Roberto Campanella, he was also the head choreographer on this movie. Oh. So there's a reason why his stuff looks good. He knows what he's doing. If you like horror, I would recommend this one. Yeah. If you don't like horror. Don't watch it. uh, Yeah. If if you want a story that's got similar themes, but you don't think you can handle this one, fair. I would recommend Paranorman. If you like this kind of stuff, check this out. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So Gans is like really hands on with DVD, like DVD and home video releases. Uh, So he kind of curated a very elaborate like three disc special edition this was a while after the movie came out because they they couldn't really do a proper special edition right away because they had so many effects shots to like fine tune for home release Mm -hmm. which is a thing that he apparently cares a lot about and does it like basically himself he oversees a lot of these like home release transfers of his films you know he doesn't strike me as like the best director out there but he does seem dedicated to his craft yeah and i haven't heard any complaints about him so that's a plus yeah i don't really know much about him outside of this and like the little bit i read about brotherhood of the wolf uh which sounds really interesting and i would like to see uh if i can get my hands on a copy of it but yeah i think that's pretty much everything that i had to say about the movie and the game. All right. Final thoughts? Hmm. I'm trying to think of a rating. Come back to me. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, as I said, I actually recommend this one. If you like horror, it's a solid little movie. I don't, I, I'd never really heard anything about it before we watched this. I think Nathan had mentioned once or twice that he thinks that it's pretty good, but you know, like one person is not like a huge amount of like tell, but like, yeah, it's a pretty solid little horror movie about, the dangers of fanaticism. Um, 
<laughs> is it like a, a perfect movie? No. Does it always make sense? Not necessarily. But I don't mind that in my horror. Um, and I think everybody's doing a pretty good job. Uh, so I give this movie one pyramid head out of six uh, potential pyramid heads. <laughs> Which is to say, a good amount of pyramid head. Uh, but it's got stronger parts than that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think this movie is pretty good. It's it's probably the movie of any of the movies we've watched that are the direct game adaptations for this show. I think this is the one that I appreciate the most as a movie. Like, like intentionally how it's supposed to be enjoyed. Yeah. Like, I, I would... I. I appreciate this movie on the same level that I appreciate any other movie that is not a video game adaptation. Like I can talk about it in that mm -hmm. like conversation without having to like couch it as a video game movie, uh, which says something because a lot of the movies we've watched have been very bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not perfect. It has like structural issues and I do think it could like, gain a lot from trimming a lot of things out and focusing more on the like central idea of like the way that trauma creates and like ripples out more trauma like the way that abuse begets abuse is kind of the ultimate central idea of this movie and I feel like it could have like honed in a little bit more on that but it's not the writer or director's fault that it doesn't yeah yeah yeah, uh, and the effects are fantastic. The performances occasionally are stilted. The dialogue could maybe have been trimmed down and like punched up a little bit. But overall, it's like a solid B minus horror movie. And I think if you are into horror, you'll find something to like dig into in this movie. I give this movie a room full of ash children out of. Bowling alley. <laughs> Out of bowling alley. I I lost steam there. I wasn't sure where I was going. Yeah, I I agree with what has been said. I think this movie could have been a little bit better, but and I I don't like horror in general. Horror movies are not my thing. Uh, we've been watching a lot of horror movies, but most of them have been terrible, and so they don't really count. But this one does its job well. Uh, it is put together well. It's sound like it's audio, like we mentioned, is phenomenal. The effects are great. I give this movie a I give this movie about 30 witch hunters being dragged to hell. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys for joining us on this episode of Video Game, the movie, the podcast. Uh, do you know what we got next, Nathan? Oh, uh, I believe the next movie is dead or alive we're getting back into the fighting game stuff that we kind of left behind in the late 90s so that's gonna be fun or not probably not <laughs> but uh thank you guys for listening uh hope to hear, hear, get you next time please don't leave <laughs> i don't know what i'm doing somebody do the socials uh, i'm i'm you can I'm find done. you can find the the show on Twitter at VGTM pod. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Conwell underscore Alex or on Facebook at Alex Conwell creative. You can find me on Twitter at Bert Nerd Tram. You can find me on Twitter at Kenzie Phoenix. 
you, you can also find all of us over on the Diceweave podcast, uh, where we do where we're messing around in space, and uh, there's there's some uh, I don't know. We did a car chase recently. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um, another video game adjacent thing. If you like video games. All right, that is our show. Thank you very much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Don't forget to save. Don't forget to save. Don't forget to save. Don't forget to save.